Prologue, Part Two of Lord Tony's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lord Tony's Wife by Emuska Orzi, Prologue, Part Two. Four. Monsieur le duc de Kernogan had just finished dinner when Jacques le Brunier, his head bailiff, came to him with the news that a rabble crowd, composed of the peasantry of Goulaine and Vertou and the neighboring villages, had assembled at the crossroads, there held revolutionary speeches, and was even now marching toward the castle still shouting and singing and brandishing a miscellaneous collection of weapons chiefly consisting of scythes and axes the guard is under arms i imagine was monsieur le duc's comment on this not altogether unforeseen piece of news everything is in perfect order replied the head bailiff coolly for the defence of monsieur le duc and his property and of mademoiselle monsieur le duc who had been lounging in one of the big armchairs in the stately hall of kernogan jumped to his feet at these words his cheeks suddenly pallid and a look of deadly fear in his eyes mademoiselle he said hurriedly by good le brunière i had forgotten momentarily monsieur le duc stammered the bailiff in anxious inquiry mademoiselle de kernogan is on her way home even now she spent the day with madame le marquis d'arbignac she was to return about eight o'clock if those devils meet her carriage on the road there is no cause for anxiety monsieur le duc broke in le brunière hurriedly i will see that a half a dozen men get to horse at once and go and meet mademoiselle and escort her home yes yes le brunière murmured the duke who seemed very much overcome with terror now that his daughter's safety was in jeopardy see to it at once quick quick i shall wax crazy with anxiety while Le Brunière ran to make the necessary arrangements for an efficient escort for Mademoiselle de Kernogan and gave the sergeant in charge of the posse the necessary directions, Monsieur Le Duc remained motionless, huddled up in the capacious armchair, his head buried in his hand, shivering in front of the huge fire which burned in the monumental hearth, himself the prey of nameless, overwhelming terror. He knew none better the appalling hatred wherewith he and all his family and belongings were regarded by the local peasantry astride upon his manifold rights feudal territorial seigneurial rights he had all his life ridden roughshod over the prejudices the miseries the undoubted rights of the poor people who were little better than serfs in the possession of the high and mighty duc de kernogan he also knew none better that gradually very gradually it is true but with unerring certainty those same downtrodden ignorant miserable and half-starved peasants were turning against their oppressors 
that riots and outrages had occurred in many rural districts in the north and that the insidious poison of social revolution was gradually creeping toward the south and west and had already infected the villages and small townships which were situated quite unpleasantly close to nantes and to kernogan for this reason he had kept a company of artillery at his own expense inside the precincts of his chateau and with the aristocrats open contempt for this peasantry which it had not yet learned to fear he had disdained to take further measures for the repression of local gatherings and would not pay the village rabble the compliment of being afraid of them in any way but with his daughter yvonne in the open roadway on the very night when an assembly of that same rabble was obviously bent on mischief matters became very serious insult outrage or worse might befall the proud aristocrat's only child and knowing that from these people whom she had been taught to look upon as little better than beasts she could expect neither mercy nor chivalry the duc de kernogan within his unassailable castle felt for his daughter's safety the most abject the most deadly fear which hath ever unnerved any man le Brunier, a few minutes later did his best to reassure his master i have ordered the men to take the best horses out of the stables monsieur le duc he said and to cut across the fields toward la grammoire so as to intercept mademoiselle's coach ere it reached the cross-roads i feel confident that there is no cause for alarm he added emphatically pray god you are right le Brunier, murmured the duke feebly do you know how strong the rabble crowd is no monseigneur not exactly camille the under bailiff who brought me the news was riding homewards across the meadows about an hour ago when he saw a huge conflagration which seemed to come from the back of Adet's mill the whole sky has been lit up by a lurid light for the past hour and i fancied myself that Adet's straw must be on fire but camille pushed his horse up the rising ground which culminates at Adet's farmery it seems that he heard a great deal of shouting which did not seem to be accompanied by any attempt at putting out the fire so he dismounted and led his horse round the hillock skirting adet's farm buildings so that he should not be seen under cover of darkness he heard and saw the old miller with his son pierre engaged in distributing scythes poles and axes to a crowd of youngsters and haranguing them wildly all the time he also heard Pierre Adet speak of the conflagration as a preconcerted signal, and say that he and his mates would meet the lads of the neighboring villages at the crossroads, and that four hundred of them would then march on Kernogan and pillage the castle. Bah, quoth Monsieur le Duc in a voice hoarse with execration and contempt, a lot of oaths who will give the hangman plenty of trouble to-morrow as for that adet and his son they shall suffer for this i can promise them that if only mademoiselle were home he added with a heart-rending sigh five indeed had monsieur le duc de kernogan been gifted with second sight the agony of mind which he was enduring would have been aggravated an hundredfold 
at the very moment when the head bailiff was doing his best to reassure his liege lord as to the safety of mademoiselle de kernogan her coach was speeding along from the chateau of urbignac toward those same crossroads where a couple of hundred hot-headed peasant lads were planning as much mischief as their unimaginative minds could conceive the fury of the gale had in no way abated and now a heavy rain was falling a drenching sopping rain which in the space of half an hour had added five centimetres to the depth of the mud on the roads and had in that same space of time considerably damped the enthusiasm of some of the poor lads threescore or so had assembled from goulaine two score from le sorinier some three dozen from doulon they had rallied to the signal in hot haste gathered their scythes and spades very eager and excited and had reached the crossroads which were much nearer to their respective villages than to jean adet's farm and the mill even while the old man was admonishing his son and the lads of vertu on the summit of the blazing hillock here they had spent half an hour in cooling their heels and their tempers under the drenching rain wet to the skin fuming and fretting at the delay but even so damped in ardour and chilled to the marrow they were still a dangerous crowd and prudence ought to have dictated to mademoiselle de kernogan the wiser course of ordering her coachman jean-marie to head his horses back toward urbignac the moment that the outrider reported that a mob armed with scythes spades and axes held the crossroads and that it would be dangerous for the coach to advance any further already for the past few minutes the sound of loud shouting had been heard even above the tramp of the horses and the clatter of the coach jean marie had pulled up and sent one of the outriders on ahead to see what was amiss the man returned with very unpleasant tidings in his opinion it certainly would be dangerous to go any further the mob appeared bent on mischief he had heard threats and curses all levelled against monsieur le duc de kernogan the conflagration up at vertu was evidently a signal which would bring along a crowd of malcontents from all the neighbouring villages he was for turning back forthwith but mademoiselle put her head out of the window just then and asked what was amiss on hearing that jean marie and the postillion and the outriders were inclined to be afraid of a mob of peasant lads who had assembled at the crossroads and were apparently threatening to do mischief she chided them for their cowardice jean marie she called scornfully to the old coachman who had been in her father's service for close on half a century do you really mean to tell me that you were afraid of that rabble why no mademoiselle so please you replied the old man nettled in his pride by the taunt but the temper of the peasantry round here has been ugly of late and tis your safety i have got to guard tis my commands you have got to obey retorted mademoiselle with a gay little laugh which mitigated the peremptoriness of her tone if my father should hear that there's trouble on the road he will die of anxiety if i do not return so whip up the horses jean marie no one will dare to attack the coach but mademoiselle remonstrated the old man 
assa she broke in more impatiently am i to be openly disobeyed best join that rabble jean marie if you have no respect for my commands thus twitted by mademoiselle's sharp tongue jean marie could not help but obey he tried to peer into the distance through the veil of blinding rain which beat against his face and stung the horses to restlessness but the light from the coach lanterns prevented his seeing clearly into the darkness beyond still it seemed to him that on ahead a dense and solid mass was moving toward the coach also that the sound of shouting and of excited humanity was considerably nearer than it had been before no doubt the mob had perceived the lights of the coach and was even now making towards it with what intent jean marie divined all too accurately but he had his orders and though he was an old and trusted servant disobedience these days was not even to be thought of so he did as he was bid he whipped up his horses which were high-spirited and answered to the lash with a bound and a plunge forward mademoiselle de kernogan leaned back on the cushions of the coach she was satisfied that jean marie had done as he was told and she was not in the least afraid but less than five minutes later she had a rude awakening the coach gave a terrific lurch the horses reared and plunged there was a deafening clamour all around men were shouting and cursing there was the clash of wood and iron and the cracking of whips the tramp of horses hoofs in the soft ground and the dull thud of human bodies falling in the mud followed by loud cries of pain there was the sudden crash of broken glass the coach lanterns had been seized and broken it seemed to yvonne de kernogan that out of the darkness faces distorted with fury were peering at her through the window panes but through all the confusion the coach kept moving on jean marie stuck to his post as did also the postillion and the four outriders and with whip and tongue they urged their horses to break through the crowd regardless of human lives knocking and trampling down men and lads heedless of curses and blasphemies which were hurled on them and on the occupants of the coach whoever they might be the next moment however the coach came to a sudden halt and a wild cry of triumph drowned the groans of the injured and the dying kernogan kernogan was shouted from every side a debt a debt you limbs of satan cried jean marie you'll rue this night's work and weep tears of blood for the rest of your lives let me tell you that mademoiselle is in the coach when monsieur le duc hears of this there will be work for the hangman mademoiselle in the coach broke in a hoarse voice with a rough tone of command let's look at her ay ay let's have a look at mademoiselle came a volley of objurgations and curses from the crowd you devils you would dare protested jean marie within the coach yvonne de kernogan hardly dared to breathe she sat bolt upright her cape held tightly round her shoulders her eyes dilated now with excitement if not with fear 
were fixed upon the darkness beyond the window-panes. She could see nothing, but she felt the presence of that hostile crowd who had succeeded in overpowering Jean-Marie and were intent on doing her harm. But she belonged to a caste which never reckoned cowardice among its many faults. During these few moments when she knew that her life hung on the merest thread of chance, she neither screamed nor fainted but sat rigidly still, her heart beating in unison with the agonizing seconds which went so fatefully by. And even now, when the carriage door was torn violently open and even through the darkness she discerned vaguely the forms of these avowed enemies close beside her, and anon felt a rough hand seize her wrist, she did not move, but sat quite calmly, with hardly a tremor in her voice. Who are you? And what do you want? An outburst of harsh and ironical laughter came in response. Who are we, my fine lady? said the foremost man in the crowd, he who had seized her wrist and was half in and half out of the coach at this moment. We are the men who throughout our lives have toiled and starved whilst you and such as you travel in fine coaches and eat your fill. What we want? Why, just the spectacle of such a fine lady as you being knocked down into the mud just as our wives and daughters are if they happen to be in the way when your coach is passing. Isn't that it, Mayami? Aye, aye, they replied, shouting lustily. Into the mud with the fine lady. Out with her, Adet. Let's have a look at Mademoiselle, how she will look with her face in the mud out with her quick but the man who was still half in and half out of the coach and who had hold of mademoiselle's wrist did not obey his mates immediately he drew her nearer to him and suddenly threw his rough begrimed arms round her and with one hand pulled back her hood then placing two fingers under her chin he jerked it up till her face was level with his own Yvonne de Kernogan was certainly no coward, but at the loathsome contact of this infuriated and vengeful creature, she was overcome with such a hideous sense of fear that for the moment consciousness almost left her. Not completely, alas, for though she could not distinguish his face she could feel his hot breath upon her cheeks, she could smell the nauseating odour of his damp clothes and she could hear his hoarse mutterings as for the space of a few seconds he held her thus close to him in an embrace which to her was far more awesome than that of death and just to punish you my fine lady he said in a whisper which sent a shudder of horror right through her to punish you for what you are the brood of tyrants proud disdainful a budding tyrant yourself to punish you for every misery my mother and sister have had to endure for every luxury which you have enjoyed i will kiss you on the lips and the cheeks and just between your white throat and chin and never as long as you live if you die this night or live to be an hundred will you be able to wash off those kisses showered upon you by one who hates and loathes you a miserable peasant whom you despise and who in your sight is lower far than your dogs. Yvonne, with eyes closed, hardly breathed, 
but through the veil of semi-consciousness which mercifully wrapped her senses she could still hear those awful words and feel the pollution of those loathsome kisses with which true to his threat this creature half man holy devil whom she could not see but whom she hated and feared as she would satan himself now covered her face and throat after that she remembered nothing more consciousness mercifully forsook her altogether when she recovered her senses she was within the precincts of the castle a confused murmur of voices reached her ears and her father's arms were round her gradually she distinguished what was being said she gathered the threads of the story which jean-marie and the postillion and outriders were hastily unravelling in response to monsieur le duc's commands these men of course knew nothing of the poignant little drama which had been enacted inside the coach all they knew was that they had been surrounded by a rough crowd a hundred or so strong who brandished scythes and spades that they had made valiant efforts to break through the crowd by whipping up their horses but that suddenly some of those devils more plucky than the others seized the horses by their bits and rendered poor jean-marie quite helpless he thought then that all would be up with the lot of them and was thinking of scrambling down from his box in order to protect mademoiselle with his body and the pistols which he had in the boot when happily for every one concerned he heard in the distance above the clatter which that abominable rabble was making the hurried tramp of horses at once he jumped to the conclusion that these could be none other than a company of soldiers sent by monsieur le duc this spurred him to a fresh effort and gave him a new idea to carmel the postillion who had a pistol in his holster he gave the peremptory order to fire a shot into the air or into the crowd jean-marie cared not which this carmel did and at once the horses already maddened by the crowd plunged and reared wildly shaking themselves free jean-marie however had them well in hand and from far away there came the cries of encouragement from the advancing horsemen who were bearing down on them full tilt the next moment there was a general melee jean-marie saw nothing save his horses heads but the outriders declared that men were trampled down like flies all around while others vanished into the night what happened after that none of the men knew or cared jean-marie galloped his horses all the way to the castle and never drew rein until the precincts were reached six had monsieur de kernogan had his way and a free hand to mete out retributive justice in the proportion that he desired there is no doubt that the hangman of nantes would have been kept exceedingly busy as it was a number of arrests were effected the following day half the manhood of the countryside was implicated in the aborted jacquerie and the city prison was not large enough to hold it all a court of justice presided over by monsieur le duc and composed of a half a dozen men who were directly or indirectly in his employ pronounced summary sentences on the rioters which were to have been carried out as soon as the necessary arrangements for such wholesale executions could be made 
Nantes was turned into a city of wailing. Peasant women, mothers, sisters, daughters, wives of the condemned, trooped from their villages into the city, loudly calling on Monsieur le Duc for mercy, besieging the improvised courthouse, the prison gates, the town residence of Monsieur le Duc, the palace of the bishop. They pushed their way into the courtyards and the very corridors of those buildings. Flunkies could not cope with them. They fought with fists and elbows for the right to make a direct appeal to the liege lord who had power of life and death over their men. The municipality of Nantes held aloof from this distressful state of things, and the town councillors, the city functionaries and their families shut themselves up in their houses in order to avoid being a witness to the heart-rending scenes which took place uninterruptedly round the courthouse and the prison the mayor himself was powerless to interfere but it is averred that he sent a secret courier to paris to monsieur de mirabeau who was known to be a personal friend of his with a detailed account of the jacquerie and of the terrible measures of reprisal contemplated by monsieur le duc de kernogan together with an earnest request that pressure from the highest possible quarters be brought to bear upon his grace so that he should abate something of his vengeful rigours poor king louis who in these days was being terrorized by the national assembly and swept off his feet by the eloquence of monsieur de mirabeau was only too ready to make concessions to the democratic spirit of the day. He also desired his noblesse to be equally ready with such concessions. He sent a personal letter to Monsieur le Duc, not only asking him, but commanding him, to show grace and mercy to a lot of misguided peasant lads whose loyalty and adherence, he urged, might be won by a gracious and unexpected act of clemency the king's commands could not in the nature of things be disobeyed the same stroke of the pen which was about to send half a hundred young countrymen to the gallows granted them monsieur le duc's gracious pardon and their liberty the only exception to this general amnesty being pierre adet the son of the miller monsieur le duc's servants had deposed to seeing him pull open the door of the coach and stand for some time half in and half out of the carriage obviously trying to terrorize mademoiselle mademoiselle refused either to corroborate or to deny this statement but she had arrived fainting at the gate of the chateau and she had been very ill ever since she had sustained a serious shock to her nerves so the doctor hastily summoned from paris had averred and it was supposed that she had lost all recollection of the terrible incidents of that night but monsieur le duc was satisfied that it was pierre adet's presence inside the coach which had brought about his daughter's mysterious illness and that heart-rending look of nameless horror which had dwelt in her eyes ever since therefore with regard to that man monsieur le duc remained implacable and as a concession to a father's outraged feelings both the mayor of nantes and the city functionaries accepted adet's condemnation without a murmur of dissent the sentence of death finally passed upon pierre the son of jean adet miller of vertu could not however be executed 
for the simple reason that pierre had disappeared and that the most rigorous search instituted in the neighborhood and for miles around failed to bring him to justice one of the outriders who had been in attendance on mademoiselle on that fateful night declared that when jean marie finally whipped up his horses at the approach of the party of soldiers adet fell backwards from the step of the carriage and was run over by the hind wheels and instantly killed but his body was never found among the score or so which were left lying there in the mud of the road until the women and old men came to seek their loved ones among the dead pierre adet had disappeared but m le duc's vengeance had need of a prey the outrage which he was quite convinced had been perpetrated against his daughter must be punished by death if not by the death of the chief offender than by that of the one who stood nearest to him thus was jean adette the miller dragged from his home and cast into prison was he not implicated himself in the riots camille the bailiff had seen and heard him among the insurgents on the hillock that night at first it was stated that he would be held as hostage for the reappearance of his son but pierre adette had evidently fled the countryside he was obviously ignorant of the terrible fate which his own folly had brought upon his father many thought that he had gone to seek his fortune in paris where his talents and erudition would ensure him a good place in the present mad rush for equality amongst all men certain it is that he did not return and with merciless hate and vengeful relentlessness m le duc de kernogan had jean adet hanged for a supposed crime said to be committed by his son jean adet died protesting his innocence but the outburst of indignation and revolt aroused by this crying injustice was swamped by the torrent of the revolution which gathering force by these very acts of tyranny and of injustice soon swept innocent and guilty alike into a vast whirlpool of blood and shame and tears End of prologue, part two.